audience. It's always a blessing having you guys worshiping with us on Sunday mornings. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, we are continuing in our series called The Upside Down Kingdom. It's called The Upside Down Kingdom because the kingdom that Jesus came to establish is upside down to everything that the world sees as upside right. And if you belong to the kingdom of God and you're living according to the standards of the kingdom, you know that the world sees you as upside down when actually we see them as upside down. We're upside right because we're in alignment with God's word and we're walking in the light of his truth. I think this sermon series could also have been called Radical Red Letter Kingdom Living. You know, I believe we're living in a time and a day where we need to give more careful attention to the red letters in God's word. And I think we all know what the red letters are. Those of you who've been Christians for any amount of time, you know when you bought a Bible, you always learned that everything in the New Testament that was in red were the words of Jesus spoken right out of his mouth. Can there be words more important than the living word speaking the word of God, the word of truth to our hearts. Out of his mouth, he spoke in Matthew 5 through 7, the manifesto of this kingdom that he came to establish. This manifesto articulates the mandates of the kingdom. Some people think, well, great, I'm going to accept Jesus as my savior and then live any old kind of life they want to live. When we study Matthew 5 through 7, we come to understand that if we are going to live in his kingdom, then we need to go by his rules. Because we're living in a kingdom. A kingdom has rules. A kingdom has a king. And when we are subjects of a king, he is ultimately the sovereign in total, complete authority. And uh, we, we just can't ne negotiate with what the king says. You just bow and surrender. But when you, you know that this king is a bridegroom, and when you understand that you are his bride and that he came to love you, he came to walk in a close, intimate fellowship and relationship with you. He came to fill your heart like no one or nothing else could ever fill your heart. Then it's a joy to walk in obedience to his commandments. The word of God says the commandments are not grievous. When you love someone, you joyfully submit to them and desire to delight their heart by doing the things that you know they appreciate you doing, right? And so it is in our, our walk with Jesus Christ. And we need to come to see that Matthew 5 through 7, as are so often quoted, just a bunch of pious platitudes. Oh, don't you love the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, and we quote the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven. And, and they're just words. They're words. But the Spirit of God wants us to understand this morning that those words need to become the guidelines for our very lives. These red letters are to govern how we live, how we walk, how we talk. They're mandates that are to govern us. 
And it all begins in Matthew 5 with what we are familiar with as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are these radical shifts in how we are to live our lives. And how people normally would think, would act, would talk, would live. Jesus turns it all upside right. Because really, as we go by our carnal nature, as you go by the standards of the world, that's really what's upside down. But Jesus teaches us through the Beatitudes what the world would see as foolishness, what the world would see as this is ridiculous. You mean to tell me I'm supposed to be poor in spirit? I mean, who wants to be poor in any kind of way, much less poor in spirit? It's because we don't understand the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Who wants to be a crybaby? How could that be something that brings blessing? Blessed are the meek. We see meekness as weakness. In the world, you need to stand up. You need to stand tall. You need to tell people what you want. You need to negotiate and let them know that you're on top. You want to keep climbing that ladder. But when you study God's word and you study the mandates of the kingdom that begin with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we come to see that these are the things that God cherishes because these are the heart of Jesus. This is how Jesus lived his life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Money, riches, pleasure, righteousness. Who in the world wants to go after righteousness? This is talking about going after it with a, 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 an unmitigated passion that you just can't get enough because you're so hungry, hungry for what God has to offer. Blessed are the merciful. Merciful? That seems to be weak. I'd rather go by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If a person treats me bad, I'm going to let them know they're not going to get away with it. Isn't that how the world acts? But we're kingdom people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. These are foundational for kingdom people, and we're kingdom people. When we got saved, we were delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and we were brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Living under a new authority, we're no longer in bondage to the prince and power of the air. Satan, we're not controlled by him any longer. Now we're controlled by the Spirit of God that lives and dwells in our hearts. And so we come to the sixth beatitude this morning. And God helping us, we want to speak on this all-important need in all of our lives for purity of heart. And our text is found in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that the word that Jesus spoke, the word that you inspired to be included in this sacred book, that is like no other book, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will stand eternally. Lord, help us to seriously listen to what the Spirit is saying to our hearts today, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. So anoint these lips of clay 
Oh God, how I need you. I have nothing to give this people except that you speak through me. And so I pray that you would anoint the ears of every listener, that we would have ears to hear and that Jesus would be glorified as your word works mightily in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So what's the clear focus of this beatitude? It's the heart. Well, when we think of heart, we think of what in the Greek original, the word is cardia. That sounds real familiar, doesn't it? We get the word cardiac, cardiology. And it obviously is speaking of that which is in the center of our body that keeps us alive as it pumps blood and life through our mortal bodies. But in the scripture, in the same way that in the physical, the heart is central, God sees the spiritual heart as central as well. The heart is all important, and my, we could do a whole sermon series on all that the Bible has to say about the heart, but suffice it to say this morning, the heart is the center of our human personality. The heart has to do with how we think, how we feel, and how we choose to live. It's our intellect, it's our will, it's our emotions. The heart is the seat of our spiritual life. And Jesus focuses on the heart because he recognizes that people think what a person is is what they see on the outside. But he understands and he knows that the real revelation of who a person is is what is on the inside of his heart. What is in our hearts makes us the people that we are. And after all, think about it. That's all that God's looking at. He's not looking at the fact that <clears throat> I'm a 5'7", or I used to be, I'm shrinking, uh, and that I'm uh, how many pounds. He's not, he's not looking at the fact that I'm losing my hair. He's not looking at any of those things. You know, we get so focused and galvanized on what the mirror is telling us. And we think if the mirror says, hey, man, you're looking good, that, hey, I'm, I'm feeling good too. But have we exposed our heart to the mirror of God's word that we see ourselves as God sees our hearts? Because that's really all that matters to him. And if that's all that matters to him, then that's all that should matter to us. You know, this is so powerfully illustrated in the story that we're familiar of how Samuel was sweeping because Saul just blew it as the first king that he had ordained over Israel. And God's saying, Samuel, get off your knees. Stop crying. It's over with Saul. Get up and go anoint a new king. Go to the house of Jesse because I've chosen one of his sons. And so we know the story, Samuel goes there, and as he sees, first of all, Eliab, the firstborn, this tall, handsome young man parade before him, his mind is, because he's looking on the outward, this prophet of the Lord is looking on the outward, believe it or not. And he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. 
But God had a pretty strong rebuke for Samuel, did he not? In 1 Samuel 16 and 7, we read, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's the point of this whole beatitude. God is looking at our hearts. And notice this morning that Jesus did not say, blessed are the pure in language. You know, we could speak with the tongue of men and of angels, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But if we don't have love in our hearts, we're as a clanging cymbal and an empty gong. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the pure in action. And as Christians, we, we get so focused on all the things that we need to do for God. And I know that's important. Trust me, as a pastor, I'm so grateful for the people in this church who are consumed with the passion to serve this ministry because this ministry could never go forward without those individuals. And guess what? Every single one of us sitting here has something to do that's what God's word says. I don't want to get off on a tangent here because that's really easy for this pastor to get off on this morning. Because so many in the church feel like, well, that's, that's their job and that's their job. I just want to come here on Sunday morning and warm a pew and just be blessed. No, God places us in the body so that we can minister life and blessing to one another. We all have something to give. Maybe it's just a smile. And if that's the role that God has called you to bring to the body, then that is going to be a blessing. But in this beatitude, he did not say, blessed are the pure in action. He didn't even say, blessed are the pure in religious observance. Oh, you come to church every Sunday, you carry your Bible, you pay your tithes. Sometimes we get really hung up on, the, on all of these external religious things that we think constitutes genuine Christianity. But see how Jesus turns it all upside down? And he doesn't focus on any of those things. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. And so the challenge for us this morning is to understand what does it mean to have purity of heart? First of all, let's understand what it does not mean. And some of us have this idea that purity of heart means that we must be sinless. And so we just gloss over this beatitude because in all honesty, we know I'm not sinless. And so we deduce I'm not pure in heart. But clearly, Jesus did not mean sinless perfection. Otherwise, 1 John 1.8 would not be in the Bible. For what does the Apostle John say? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And maybe that's the first manifestation of an impure heart. That we have this idea that we've achieved sinless perfection. And we have this holy aura about ourselves. And I know in the church that I grew up in that women did not wear makeup and no jewelry and you needed to make sure that your skirts were down to your ankles 
And, you know, the, those, were the, those were the marks of real spirituality and holiness. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. And being pure in heart means that we're still walking in this world. Isn't that what Jesus recognized? He recognized that reality, that we still sin. We're still made of flesh. That's not to excuse it. We can never say, well, if grace is going to cover it, let me continue in sin. Paul says, God forbid. Just because we're grace abounds, sin abounds, grace does much more abound, that doesn't give us license to continue in sin. It should challenge us to say, oh God, your grace is so precious, your grace is so wonderful, your mercy is so great, I don't ever want to sin again. And when we do sin, we have contrite hearts and broken spirits and we repent and we come before God. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, blessed are those who mourn. Because when we mourn over our sin, that delights the heart of God. And by the way, didn't you love the, uh, the nuance of truth that Pastor Terry gave last Sunday? I know repentance is, is one of my pet topics, but sometimes I fear some Christians might think, Pastor, why are you always on repentance? I repented when I gave my heart to Jesus. I repented when, when I came to the foot of the cross and said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me for all of my sin. Didn't he forgive me for all of my sin? Yes, indeed, he forgave you for all of your sin. Yes, indeed, he came into your heart. Yes, indeed, he gave you a new heart. Yes, he gave you a new spirit. But we still have this flesh. And because we have this flesh, we're prone to sin. And Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus said, Peter, you don't understand. Yes, you're bathed. Yes, you're one of my disciples. Yes, you're, you're a holy man of God. But you don't need to be washed all over. You're clean, but your feet, walking in this dirty world, your feet get dirty and they need to be washed. And that's that truth that Pastor Terry brought out last week that I appreciated so much. We need to live a lifestyle of repentance because this carnal nature so often wants to go in the wrong direction. And what is repentance? It's turning. And, and so when we have a thought, we think, oh, that's, that's not of God. We turn. That's repenting. We say, God, I want to love you. I want to love your truth. I want to love what is holy. I want to love what is righteous. I want to love what is pure. I want to love what is true. We're saved. We've been cleansed by the blood, but we walk in a corrupt world. But the glorious truth is when we do sin, we get convicted. The Holy Spirit is faithful to say, uh-uh, uh-uh, you've transgressed. You get this uncomfortable feeling inside, and that's just a little reminder. It's time to repent. Don't run away from Jesus in those times. Oh, I can't face you, Lord. I'm, I'm so terrible. I keep doing the same sin. No, you just turn and run to Jesus. It's the devil's lie. He, he tempts you to sin, or he puts that temptation in front of you because he knows where your vulnerability is. He knows where your weakness is. So he delights in the fact that he's putting that before you. And James says, what is on the inside of us, that desire, that carnal thing on the inside of us, reaches out to that temptation. And when the two come together, there's conception. And sin is conceived. Then it's too late. It happened. 
But that's when we need to turn and repent. But when we do, the word of God says in 1 John 1, 7, we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Aren't you thankful for the cleansing of the blood? That we walk in the light every day of our life. We walk in the light. We're walking in a wicked, sinful world. You just can't about go anywhere without your eye seeing something that is wrong, your ear hearing something that is wrong. Something provokes you and you're ready to say something that is wrong. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood, hallelujah for the blood. Aren't you thankful for the blood? Oh, I, I'm so thankful for the blood. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, as human beings, we're, we're not prone to often quickly forgive because we're, we're human. Thank God, God is not like us. As soon as we repent, he said, I took care of that at the cross. It's covered, it's over, and now it's buried in the depth of the deepest sea. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So Jesus clearly is not referring to something that is of sinless perfection. Pure in the Greek language comes from the word katharos. Does that sound familiar? Some of you medical people are familiar with the word catharsis. That's used in psychology, also in counseling, where it speaks about the cleansing of the, the mind and the emotions. So you sit on the, the couch of the uh, counselor or the psychologist and you just spill it, you know. You get it all out. That's, that's good. That's healthy. It's a catharsis. It cleanses the soul. It cleanses the emotions. And so the basic meaning here of pure is making pure by cleansing all filth and contamination. And it doesn't mean that something has never been dirty, but it actually means just the opposite of that, something that was dirty but has now been cleansed. You know, bottled water is the big thing today, isn't it? I think about growing up as a kid, there was no such thing. Who would buy a bottle of water? You bought a bottle of pop, you know, all those other things. But water, you get that out of the tap, right? But now we want to be healthy. But was that water always pure? It was purified so that they could say on the bottle, this water is healthy and clean and pure. And this is the purity of heart that God is speaking about. He's speaking about a heart that has filtered out the impurities and the pollutants that defile our hearts. It's that inward moral purity as opposed to how the Pharisees thought purity consisted of. You know, the Pharisees were so fastidious about observing every tiny little law of God. And then the, the Jewish rabbis took the law and they even multiplied more laws on top of that. So actually, they come up to 613 commandments that they felt if they were going to live a pure and a holy life, they had to fulfill every one of those commandments. It came down to tithing, even the herbs that they tie, they, the exact amount. But God's saying, I, I'm not looking for 
you to be pure in how you keep rules and regulations. I'm looking for you to allow my spirit to cleanse your heart of all the impurities. God's not looking for rule keepers. He's looking for heart righteousness. And that righteousness that comes by having a living, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Who did Jesus have the most problem with as he, as he lived on this earth and as he ministered on this earth? It was the religious people. It was the religious leaders. What did he say in Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, do, do we understand who Jesus was talking to? These are the people that everyone revered. I mean, in Israel, these were the people who were the standard bearers. You, you saw them and you said, oh, I, I wish I could live holy like them. I, I wish I could be as righteous as them. I wish I could fulfill the law of God as well as they do. Woe to you. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What a scathing denunciation of people who thought they were so righteous when God says, when I look into your heart, I see nothing but filthiness and unrighteousness. See, this purity of heart is so very important to us as Christians. And you know why the word of God teaches us that it's so important? We find the answer to that in Proverbs 4 and 23. A familiar passage of scripture that says, above all else. Is there anything more important than this? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Another translation puts it this way, for out of it are the issues of life. Now, do you know what a wellspring is? A wellspring is just not a, a little well or a little spring, but it is a well or a spring that feeds other wells, other springs, other streams. It's the source it's the source. And Jesus is wanting us to understand this morning that our heart is the source of our entire life. Every aspect, every facet of our life is controlled by our hearts. And if our hearts are unclean, if our hearts are defiled, then what is going to come out of our heart is also going to be defiled. Guard your heart because it's going to spill over into all of these other areas. If it's clean and pure, all those other areas are going to be clean and pure. But if it's defiled, then you're also going to defile those other areas. Because you know what? The heart is really the seedbed for all of sin. Where does sin germinate? It germinates in our heart. What did Jesus say in Matthew 15? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Now, he was addressing again the Pharisees because they were, I mean, they were up in arms over the fact that they saw the disciples eating with hands that were not washed. My wife would also be upset about that. <laughs> when we go out to a diner to eat, the first thing that comes out are the alcohol wipes. And I'm so grateful that she's keeping me healthy 
and steering clear of all the bacteria and viruses that are out there. But the Pharisees thought as a religious ceremony that they had to do it in a certain way because that meant that they were pleasing to God. What did Jesus say? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. It's not what goes in. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Think about this. Every sin that's ever committed, it germinates in the fertile soil of our hearts. Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, Jesus said, are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile anyone. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12 and 34? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what is in a person's heart? Listen to what they're saying. Because what their heart is full of, their mouth is also going to be full of. And if we want to live a life that is pleasing to God, obviously it's not only the words that we speak, but as Jesus teaches us in Matthew 15, it's all of these actions that people in the world take, but it all starts with the heart. So what are the earmarks of those who are, have pure hearts? I believe the answer to that is found in Psalm 24. It helps us answer that question. In those familiar words, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? And the answer is in Psalm 24, verse 1. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does a pure heart consist of? The psalmist explains that to us when he says, he does not lift up his soul to an idol. Now we think idolatry is something that only concerned the Old Testament. Because as you study the Old Testament, I mean one of the first commandments, thou shalt have no graven images before me. And as you study the history of Israel, where they blew it over and over and over and over again. And it's pretty amazing as you study, and I've been reading through Kings, and it's like, this is like deja vu over and over again. There would be one righteous king who would tear down all the idols, the next king would rise up, and he would follow after his evil grandfather or father and build all those idols again. And God was so displeased. And we think that, well, Idolatry doesn't exist anymore. We don't carve anything out of wood or stone and bow down and worship it. But yet in our life, there are these small g gods that we bow down to. They are not wood. They are not stone. But they could be any number of things. Any number of things that gives our affection that belongs to God to someone or something else. God said the first and the greatest commandment, or Jesus repeated it, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
And when God has that kind of priority in your life, then you're not going to have any other God before him because your heart is completely given over to him. The sin of idolatry today is very much alive and well in all of us who have impure hearts because we're not exclusively worshiping the Lord. We're not loving him with all of our hearts, but we're bowing down to these small g gods. It boils down to this. We've become double-minded as Christians. But those who have pure hearts are single-minded they do not have a divided heart. I love the prayer of the psalmist David. Unite my heart. David recognized that there was competition in his heart. Part of his heart was going after God, but he had a carnal nature that wanted to go in the opposite direction. And for most of his life, thankfully, he would consistently turn and pray, God, unite my heart. I want every bit of me to love you and to serve you and to walk in holiness and righteousness. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. That's an undivided heart. That's a heart with a singular focus. You know, Spurgeon said a jealous God will not be content with a divided heart. He must be loved first and loved best. And apparently, even in the first century church, because they were human as we are human, and sometimes we think the first century church, boy, if we could get back to the first century church, boy, we'd be great Christians. And there's a lot of truth in that, especially in this 21st century, in this Western hemisphere. Christianity has become so watered down. We've become so apathetic and complacent and lethargic. That's not how the early church was. They, they met together constantly in worship and in prayer. It wasn't in the walls of a, four, uh, a building, the four walls of a church. They, they just wanted the fellowship with the saints. They had a hunger for God. They had a hunger for the word of God. You know, Kathy and I grew up in, in a day and age when you just didn't go to church on a Sunday morning. We went to church every time the doors were open. And as if that wasn't enough, my mother drug us to another church that had another service on another night that our church didn't have it. And I have to confess, when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate that. But I'm grateful for it now because it taught me that there is importance to honoring God to being gathered together, there's something. Some people think now COVID has really ruined us because we think that we could sit in the comfort of our home and still get to church. Now, I know that there's those who are sick and infirmed, and thank God for technology that provides that opportunity. But it's not to be an escape for those who can come to church and should be in church because it's in the gathering of the saints. There's something that you get in the house of God that you don't get in your living room. As clear as your TV set is, you just don't get the same thing. But I got onto a rabbit trail there. I just wanted to get to this verse in James. Because he's talking to Christians in the first century and he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
It's like if you're going to really be a kingdom Christian, there's no room for double-mindedness. You can't serve God and serve someone else, something else. Jesus was pretty clear as well, wasn't he? And we're going to talk about that right now because this is so clearly illustrated in the story of the rich young ruler who really, he, he heard about Jesus and he heard him teach and he thought, wow, this man has something to say. I, I, he finally had an opportunity to have a private audience with him and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the conversation that Jesus had. We're, 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 we're just going to cut it short this morning. But when Jesus asked him the question, he saw into his heart that was divided. You know, outwardly, he may have seen like, wow, this is an upstanding young man. I mean, he, he's just perfect in every way, isn't he? He's got money, he's got prestige, he's in with the in crowd, people love him, respect him, look up to him, and he has this righteous heart that wants to serve God until Jesus exposed the idol in his heart and he thrust the sword of the spirit into his very heart and it revealed that he was worshiping both God and money and Jesus is clear, no man can serve God and money at the same time. And he calls him out on it and he says, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And when Jesus made that statement, we know the story, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, don't get the idea this morning that Jesus is asking you uh, to uh, go into your bank, take out all your savings, and give it to the poor. Throw away your 401k. That is not what Jesus is teaching. That's not what the Word of God is teaching. It's teaching that we can't love money above God. That money can't have first place in our hearts because if it has first place in our hearts, then there's an idolatry. Then there's an impurity, and we need to cleanse our hearts if we're going to be pure before God. Now, what is the promise, and I'm closing with this this morning, to those who are pure in heart? Jesus says very simply, they shall see God. Mm. They shall see God. You know, we could come to church, we could go through all kinds of religious exercises and performances but if we're not seeing God if we're not experiencing the reality of God then we're going through religious formality that is meaningless and empty why did God send his son Jesus to reveal the father why has the Spirit come to dwell in our hearts to reveal Jesus? We've never arrived. In fact, the more that we get to know him, the more we understand we don't know about him. And the more we desire to know him in a deeper, richer, fuller way. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, this word see in the Greek is much like the word love. You know, in the English, we just say love. 
And so we love our dog, we love apple pie, as well as we love our wife, as well as we love God, right? But in the Greek language, there are three words for love. And one is phileo, that speaks of a brotherly love, the love that we, affection that we share with one another. The other is eros, which is an erotic love that can be wonderful if it's shared with your spouse. But in the world today, people are saying they're loving this person and all they're doing is lusting after that person, an ungodly love. But then there's agape love that is a selfless, pure, holy love. And that is God's love. And so in the same way, there are three words for see here. They shall see God. First of all, it's, it's to see with the eye. When you sit in the chair of your ophthalmologist and he puts that chart in front of you, say, now read these letters. That you're seeing, right? Oh, that's A, D, E, G, uh, W. <laughs> that's not the seeing that the scripture is speaking about here. To see, secondly, for the purpose of observing or being enlightened. So we say we're going to go see a movie. Are you going to see a screen? Are, are you going to just see animation? Or are you going to see a storyline? Are you going to see and experience what the director of that movie is trying to communicate? But the third meaning is really the truth of what Jesus is pointing to here. The seeing is a knowing with understanding and emotional intelligence. This is what we talk about when we say, I can't wait to get home to see my wife. You just walk in the door and say, oh, I see you, honey. I see you're all dolled up today. Were you out for lunch? No, that's, that's not the seeing. It's the seeing to enter into an emotional experience of appreciating and loving and valuing the emotional connection that you have with that person. It's a face-to-face -face seeing. And that's what God is saying that he wants us to have with him. How does this happen? Now, a lot of us think or would hope to believe that this means that someday I'm going to have a theophany. You know what a theophany is? I'm going to see God. I'm going to have a vision. God's going to reveal himself. Remember Moses, God, I want to see you face to face. What did God say to Moses? Moses, you can't see me face to face. The fire and the glory in me would just consume you. You, you burn up like dust. But I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll, I'll pass by so you could sense my glory. But if we read Psalm 32, and we don't have time to get into all of it, I just quickly want to touch on a, a couple of things. The background of this psalm is David, we know, had committed an awful sin, and as long as he stayed in an unrepentant condition, he was miserable, he was cranky, he was just an awful person to live with, and he realized the problem is I need to repent of my sin. 
And the Bible says when he repented of his sin, everything dramatically, radically changed. And the Bible actually points out the blessings that came into his life. He says in verse 7, Lord, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You know what happened when David repented? He saw God as a God who delivered him from evil, who delivered him from trouble, who delivered him from difficulty, who delivered him from corrupt people who were after him. And aren't you thankful today that as Christians, we too can experience seeing God in deliverance every day? We should have been in that car accident. We, we should have had that God-awful experience, but God delivered us because he sees that we have pure hearts. He sees that we love him, and the word of God says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking, seeking. He's looking, he's searching, he's seeking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal toward him, who have pure hearts. Seeing God, seeing God. But that's just the beginning. As we look further in this psalm, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God wants us to know that as we live with pure hearts before him, that we will see him guiding us, leading us, instructing us. We will see the plan of God unfolding in our lives. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to fret. We don't have to worry. God is in control of our lives. If we are bowing in surrender to his lordship, to his authority, we're not serving other idols. We're not serving small Gee, God's, our affections and our allegiance is toward him. And he says, I'm going to guide you with my eye. I'm going to counsel you, show you the way that you should go. There's no greater experience, Christian friends, than to walk with King Jesus and to see God working in our homes, working in our marriage, working in our children, working on our jobs. You know, we, we take an awful lot on to us like we need to make it happen. No, 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 no. We just need to surrender to him. We need to let him live his life in and through us and we could see God do these wonderful miracles. We could see his blessing. We could see his favor. We could see his mercy. We could see his goodness. The pure in heart will see God and only the pure in heart We'll see God. So I don't know about you, but after meditating on this, on this beatitude, my heart is crying after God. God, give me a pure heart. I want to see you. I want to experience your reality in my everyday life. And I, I just want to close this morning with this testimony of George Mueller, which is such a picture of a pure heart. He says, when I surrendered myself totally to God, the love of money was gone. The love of a home was gone. The affection of wealth was gone. The love of worldly things was gone. God had become my everything. I found everything in him. There was nothing else I wanted. And I stayed with him. A happy, happy, a very happy man seeking only to accomplish the things that please God.
Is that our testimony today? I believe it can be our testimony, and it will be our testimony if we open up our hearts to him and say, Lord, give me a pure heart. As I was thinking and praying about what song to close the service with, I came across an old song by Keith Green. Only those of you who are as old as me would know who he is. He's a mighty, mighty man of God who is just sold out to God. And at a young age, God took him home, but Keith Green still lives on. You know, the Bible says, though dead, they still speak. And he's still speaking through this song, create in me a clean heart, O God. So I want us to stand as we close. Before we close in prayer, I want us to make this the prayer of our hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And ask the Lord to give us pure hearts today.